Welcome to the Westminster Pulpit, an extension of the worship ministry at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format, and may this sermon nurture your life in a meaningful way as we proclaim our Savior. We now join Associate Pastor Rev. Dave Kiefer. We've been walking through uh, the book of 2 Samuel, and we come to chapter 7. The passage is climactic within the unfolding revelation of God, for in these verses, God reveals His everlasting covenant with David. And this chapter will frame King David's entire story, for this chapter is a linchpin that shows how the covenants hold together from Abraham to Moses to David. And in it, God's, God promises that a son of David will always sit on the throne and reign over God's people. And that promise will be fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ, son of David, who reigns eternally on the throne. But not only does this chapter frame David's story, it frames the story of all of God's people. And as we look at the story, we'll see a beautiful picture that it paints. And first we're going to look at the, the background of the story, and then the foreground of the story, and then we'll learn from David how to position ourselves within the story. Now here at Westminster, our goal is to help you to understand the scriptures. We don't just read a phrase here and there and launch off and share what we have to share, for my wisdom's not great. But our goal is to just read through the passage asking what's it say, what's it mean, and how's it apply, for it's God's word that has the power. And so I'm going to be walking through the passage with you. But first, I want to give a little bit of the context. The background of the story and its significance for those of you who are new to us and you haven't been walking with us through 2 Samuel, it's important to know that after King Saul's rebellion, God had promised the kingdom to David, all the way back in 1 Samuel 16. And by the, by the way God turns the kingdom over to David, we'll learn that it's, it's anything but pleasant. It's kind of unexpected. The process of transitioning the kingdom from Saul to David, it's, just, it's filled with pain and heartbreak. Despite David's loyalty to Saul, Saul attempts to murder David, not once, not twice, but multiple times. Saul turns Israel against David such that David has no shelter in the land. And first David's driven into the wilderness, and then ultimately he has no place to go but the land of his enemies, the Philistines. David's wife, Michael, was stolen from him. Her father, Saul, gave him to another man. David lost his best, most faithful friend, Jonathan, Saul's son. Jonathan was loyal to his father to the end, and he died alongside Saul. So like I said, it's anything but a pleasant story when we look at the background. And David's new kingdom, as we've read, it's marked by civil unrest from the start, Upon Saul's death in 2 Samuel, all the northern tribes of Israel refused to come over to David's side. And there's civil war because they failed to recognize him as king. So that's the background of David's story. It's painted in dark colors of pain and frustration, heartbreak and isolation. And yes, David was promised the kingdom. 
But God's delivery not only seemed to be behind schedule, but by the time the kingdom is handed over, it seems severely damaged, marred by strife and infighting and civil unrest. And if that's not frustrating enough, the seemingly normal, natural solution for restoring unity within the kingdom is shut down permanently by God. And that's the last thing we read about in chapter 6 before we pick up in chapter 7. How so? Michael's womb is closed. Look at it in the end of chapter 6, verse 23. And Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no child to the day of her death. I want you to think about that. The best way to unite a kingdom so that the followers of David and and Saul might both be satisfied would be if David and Michael, Saul's daughter, who was his wife that's restored to him, could have a royal child together, right? Thus, David's son would be Saul's grandson, and for all practical purposes, it would seem like the best way to unite the kingdom and avoid civil war. But that's the one solution that God providentially closes the door upon. And while it seems like it's a very good solution, maybe the best solution to us, God has already determined to end Saul's dynasty and replace it with a new dynasty, not to mix the two. Now that's remarkable if we stop and think about it. It means this, that God doesn't always do what we think makes the most sense. But then again, God's ways are not our ways. And when we discover this, we, have, we can do one of two things. We can grow cynical and bitter, mistrusting either God's power to intervene or his willingness to intervene, or we can trust God and wait for the unfolding of God's story, looking to him to work his power and goodness in our lives, even if in very unexpected ways. So that's the background of David's story up to this point. Up to this point, much of what God has done just doesn't make sense. Let me ask you, can you relate to that background? Maybe you have seen ways that God could intervene to spare his people a whole lot of pain and heartbreak. Only God doesn't intervene. Instead, he closes the door. Maybe like Michael, you've desired a child that was never given to you or a marriage partner for life that God has withheld, or a long-term illness to resolve, or an issue with chronic pain that just won't go away, or a marriage partner to soften and yield or change in some big way, or a child to return home, or a job opportunity that could really solve a bunch of your problems, but you just keep getting skipped over. Do you know the pain of such unanswered prayers? And like David, you probably can look at your life and you can't deny that you've enjoyed many of God's blessings. And like David, you must admit God is always true to his promises and you've seen him work in amazing ways. But sometimes he withholds good gifts, right desires that are left unfulfilled, things that could make life better, that just make sense. But God doesn't always do what we think makes the most sense. And that's the background of David's story. Now, the foreground is set in sharp contrast to this heartbreaking background. 
And it's set in contrast to remind us that even when God's ways don't make sense to us, we can still trust that he has something great in store, probably better than we ever expected because his character is good and trustworthy. And that's the message of 2 Samuel 7, God's covenant with David. And this covenant of God is beautiful. It's gorgeous. Much ink has been spilled on 2 Samuel 7. A lot has been written. This is a chief, central passage. It is beautiful. But it reminds me of a carefully and beautifully crafted frame, like a picture frame. It's beautiful, but the point isn't to bring attention to the frame. The point is to bring attention to the thing it frames. So we want to focus not on the covenant of God, but the God of the covenant. The breathtaking beauty is the one being framed. The God of the covenant is of greater significance than the covenant of God, just as a picture is more precious than the picture frame. And so we want to focus our attention there on this God of the covenant. His beauty and his character shine through in chapter 7. And it paints him in the foreground. He is front and center. And as we gaze upon him, we'll see his humility, his grace, and his faithfulness. Now these three points, they're pretty obvious, but I, I want to give credit where credit is due, that, that Richard uh, Ralph Davis came up with these three points. I said, I'll just take them because they're great points. Humble, gracious, faithful. We pick up in verse 1. First, look at God's humility. Now when the king, being David, lived in his house, the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies. The king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. See, something was bothering David. Now that God had given David rest from all his enemies, finally he has rest, finally he's at peace, finally the northern tribes have aligned with him, and it's united, a united kingdom, and he's living in Jerusalem, not Hebron, and the ark of God has been brought in and set up in a tent right next to David's palace. And David realized something's wrong with this picture, and he's bothered by it. Because he realized that proper honor was not being given to God. He lived in a mansion, but the ark of God still dwelled in a tent. And he reflects on this irony to Nathan in chapter 2. And David doesn't really need to say anymore, because Nathan can read his mind in verse 3. God needed to be honored with a permanent house where he could be worshipped. And there was really nothing to think about. So Nathan's answer was, just, just do it. Go for it. And we pick up in verses 4 through 6. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I've not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel? whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? What's going on here? God reflects several things to Nathan that are just shocking. And and maybe God's being tongue-in-cheek, but it seems like this whole idea of 
having a permanent home and this tent not being adequate, it's almost like God hasn't thought of this before. You know, he says, where did you get that idea? Whom have I commanded to build me a house? In other words, God seems completely content to camp out with his people, to be on the move with his people, even if it means living in a humble tent. Now, this is not how we are accustomed to view our leaders, not politicians, not kings, let alone gods. See, our our leaders expect to be quartered in the finest establishment. Just read the newspapers. Even those that claim to represent the underprivileged buy multi-million dollar houses the moment they get the chance. But not the God of the Bible, because he's a humble God. Did you hear that? That's an amazing statement to say. The God of the universe is humble. What does that mean? See, religious people, we often assume that what needs to be front and center in our relationship with God is our humility toward God. And certainly, God deserves the highest respect and honor and glory. Absolutely. It's not appropriate truthfully, for Yahweh to dwell in a tent while David dwells in a mansion. And so David, his reverent posture toward God, it's noble and it's right. But we must remember that David's not simply, you know, showing reverence to God because it's the right thing to do, because showing reverence is a duty. I mean, people show reverence for all types of suspicious reasons. People show reverence to people in power and authority for all types of suspicious reasons, charlatans, demons included. But David's bothered here because David has a humble heart that loves God. And so he's not trying to build God up or butter God up. He's truly humble and he's recognizing God's glory and worthiness that God deserves better. And so what we see here is David is humble and while his humility is noteworthy and we should emulate it, it's not the humility of David that's front and center. It's God's humility. David's humility may be remarkable, but God's humility is mind-blowing. And yes, as we look at the dark background of David's life, we see remarkable humility. But as we look at the foreground of David's story, where it's going, we see an unimaginable, mind-blowing humility of God. And when we understand that, it changes us. For it emboldens us to trust this God, to lean on Him, for He is gentle and kind and good. Now, there are many religions that focus on the humility of man, east and west. There is only one religion that focuses on the humility of God, and that is the biblical faith. And we see it from Genesis to Revelation. You see in Genesis, right at the beginning, God is humble enough to walk with Adam and Eve in the garden. Here, he's humble enough to live in a tent. In the New Testament, we'll see he's humble enough to be born a helpless infant. God's humility is grounded in his loving character, and it's utterly distinctive and different than our humility. We're humble because, well, we have to be. We're weak. We're limited, right? It's not hard for a worm to be a humble. (laughs) Worms are worms. But God is humble despite him being all-glorious and all-powerful, because he chooses to be, even though he's strong. 
And even when those far inferior to him cast aspersions at him and openly rebel against him, this is the humility of our God. That's a God you can trust. Even when things happen in your life that you don't understand, you can trust the character of God. The most unexpected thing that you will discover as you read the Bible is that God is humble. And that should humble us. See, the fact of the matter is, God is not sitting up in heaven, bored, needing our worship. He's not insecure. He doesn't even need our worship. He's quite confident in who he is. He didn't need David to make a temple, for God created the universe. How is a temple going to be suitable for him? He doesn't need to be served, but he does enjoy being with his people. See, the truth is, we are the ones that need him. We need his service. But amazingly, he's the humble one who serves and abides with his people. God has always been humble. It's who he is. It's his character, Old Testament and New. So the next time someone says, well, that God of the Old Testament, he's so angry. Read the, are you reading the same Old Testament I'm reading? He is a humble God. Always has been. And the covenant of David puts a frame around God's humble character to highlight it so that when he shows up in the flesh in Jesus Christ, we know what to expect. And even though we're told to expect God is humble, and that's mind-blowing, we're told to expect it, but even when we're given a picture after picture of God's humility throughout the Old Testament, we, like the first century Jews, expect something else. And so when a king comes in, humble and riding on a colt, on a donkey, we miss him. I know it's hard to believe, but God is humble. How else does this apply? Oftentimes we want God to prove himself to us through his strength. Because that's what we do. God, prove yourself. Do something. Write your name in the sky. And God at times does miracles. Sometimes we say, shut the mouths of these liars. Show yourself. Because we want him to show up in power and strike people down with lightning. But we have to remember God is a humble God. And sometimes the best way to break a heart is to show up humbly like a baby or on a cross or through the love of his corporate body, the church. What a humble thing that God would make his most powerful witness, you and me. Have you looked at us lately? And he's pleased to do it. So God is humble. That's the first thing we see. We also see grace. Verse 8. Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly for the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. From the time I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. Here the Lord points to the extent of his mercy to David. 
And there's a past grace here, verse 8. I chose you from the pasture, from following my sheep to be leader over my sheep. Right? Verse 9, I was with you, I preserved you. In other words, God's grace has been sufficient through the darkness, through the heartbreak, grace for the betrayals, grace for the alienation and isolation, grace for weakness. God's grace is sufficient. It's preserved David. He wasn't alone in that cave. He wasn't alone in Ziglag. God was with him. He was on the move, protecting and providing for him. And maybe that's why God's content to, for the ark to stay in a tent, because he wanted to remind David and Israel that I am with my people. I'm not stationary. I'm not staying behind. I always go out with them. I'm always abiding among them. But God's grace isn't just something to look back on. It's a future grace. It grows bigger and bigger over the days. And in the foreground of David's story, God paints with colors of grace. Look at it, verse 9, as we look at this future grace. I will make a great name for you, David. Verse 10, I shall plant Israel safely. Verse 11, I shall give you rest from your enemies. Verse, uh, at the end of verse 11, I shall make a house for you. Now, it may be tempting to look at David's background and ruminate. You know, God could have, would have, and should have. God could have spared Jonathan. God would have spared Saul if he repented. He should have opened Michael's womb. You know, we, we could ruminate with all this could have, would have, should have, rather than look for God's grace. And, and here, David is reminded of God's grace, not just his past grace, but future grace that's going to grow up into eternity, a grace that puts the past into perspective. How do I mean? See, while, while the pain of David's past may not shrink or get smaller, and those of you who have suffered, those of you who have gone through tremendous grief, you may have expected my grief to get smaller, to shrink, and it, it's not. God is promising that even though your grief may not get smaller, I am going to bless you in such a way, I'm going to grow your life bigger around your grief. I'm going to build you a permanent house. I'm going to build you a new life. And so his life begins to grow, and because his life grows richer and more fuller, in comparison, his grief will grow smaller. That is how God does it. He gives greater comfort and greater healing, and he's going to give David a great name, not for David's sake, but for his glory, for Israel's sake. He's going to plant Israel safely and give them rest from their enemies, and he's going to establish an unshakable kingdom through a son of David who will always sit on the throne. This God, framed by the Davidic covenant, is humble, gracious, and then last, faithful. God's covenant with David is a picture of perfect faithfulness. Look at verse 12. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. And when he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men with stripes with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, who I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and in accordance with all of this vision, Nathan spoke to David. So after God 
tells David that his offspring will establish an everlasting kingdom for God's people. He promises that David's son, not David himself, will be the one to build this permanent dwelling place for God. Now notice the full guarantee that comes with God's promise. Death does not annul it, verses 12 and 13. Not David's death or the succeeding death of his offspring. For in verse 13, God will establish his throne forever. Death does not annul it. Sin cannot destroy it, verses 14 and 15. God will discipline David's offspring as a son. But unlike his relationship with King Saul, God's steadfast love will never depart from David's line. So sin cannot destroy it. And then third, time will not exhaust it. Verse 16, David's house will be made sure. The throne of David will be established forever through the son of David. What a guarantee. What a promise. But again, this is merely a picture frame designed to bring attention to God. The promise will be realized in the Son of David, Jesus Christ, who reigns eternally on the throne. He's the one framed. He's the precious one. Sin could not destroy his kingdom, for he defeats it on the cross. Death could not annul his kingdom, for he was raised from the dead. Time will not exhaust his kingdom, for he reigns above and sits at the right hand of the Father until all his enemies are at his footstool. That's the foreground, and it's set in such stark contrast to the background to remind us that even when God's ways don't make sense, we can trust that he has something great in store because his character is good and trustworthy, for he is humble and gracious and faithful. I want to close with David's response. So what do we learn from David's response as it relates to position our, positioning ourselves within the picture of God's covenant grace? Like David, we are all placed between a dark and confusing background and a bright and certain foreground. And like David, we have a choice. And the first choice we have is we can either look forward to the wonderful plan of God or we can ruminate and stew over the brokenness. Look at it in verse 18. Look at how he chooses to wonder at God's plan rather than stew over his broken past. In verse 18, then King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I? Who am I, O Lord? And what is my house that you have brought me thus far? And yet, this was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord God. You have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come. And this is instruction for mankind, O Lord God. And what more can David say to you? For you know the heart of your servant, O Lord God. Because your promise, and according to your own heart, you have brought about all this greatness to make your servant know about it. Therefore, you are great, O Lord God. There is none like you, and there is no God besides you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. See, David marveled over the previous grace instead of ruminate over the brokenness. In verse 18, who am I? David knew he didn't deserve such grace, but that didn't stop him from asking for it and receiving it. 
And then David marveled over present grace. Look at verse 18 and 19, that you have brought me to this point, and yet this was a small thing in your eyes. See, David had had a lot of spears thrown at him, but God preserved him at every turn. David was regularly outnumbered and surrounded, but God brought him through it. David was cast out and abandoned, but every time, God brought him back. And David marvels over future grace in verse 19. You have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come. And this instruction for mankind, O Lord, what more can David say to you? See, David's speechless about the extent of God's grace. The way of redemption in David's life would be instruction for all men. And in verse 20, he says, you know your servant. This is a confession. You have brought about and revealed all this greatness to me, but not because of what is in my heart, but in verse 22, but because of what is according to your heart. So instead of ruminating or instead of living in insecurity, he wonders at God's plan of grace. He doesn't look back in bitterness or look at the present in insecurity saying, woulda, coulda, shoulda. Instead, he rests in God's plan and he wonders, what's God going to do next? And he's able to do so because he's captivated by who God is. He's humble, he's gracious, he's faithful, and so he rests in that. He doesn't need to prove himself to God. He knows there's nothing he can do to prove himself to God. He could have said, God, let me serve you. Let me impress you. No, 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 no. I will build a house for you. But instead, he says, okay, God, I'll let you serve me. He lets himself be impressed by God. He rests in the future God would build for him. And that leads to a second choice. Not only did David wonder at God's plan, he wondered at God's people. Look at verse 23. He wonders at God's people rather than complain about God's people. And he had a lot to complain about. Look at verse 23. And who is like your people Israel? The one nation on earth whom you went to redeem to be his people. Making himself a name and doing for them great and awesome things by driving out before your people whom you redeemed for yourself from Egypt, a nation and its gods. And you established for yourself your people Israel to be your people forever. And you, O Lord, became their God. Now, David could have despaired over the civil war that haunted the first chapters of 2 Samuel. He could have complained over the few that offered protection toward him along the way when he was on the run from Saul. But instead, in verse 23, he takes pride in his people. He describes Israel as a nation without peer. Who is like your people, Israel? Now, to clarify, I don't think he means that Israel is better than other nations. But he only means that Israel's God is better than the God of any other people. And he clarifies that. Israel is the one nation on earth whom God went to redeem, verse 23, from Egypt, whom he preserved, verse 24, whom he privileged by being their God. Talk about privilege. This is better than white privilege, better than American privilege, better than two-parent privilege. This is divine privilege. God chooses to bless Israel, redeem and preserve them, his people, despite all their faults and failures and sin. How does this apply? See, we can try to position ourselves to earn God's grace. That's what every humanistic religion does. Or we can position ourselves where God is in our debt and we grow bitter or we grow resentful of the grace that others freely receive. And that's often the philosophy of human secularism. Or we can embrace 
grace like David does and pray for more of it. And that is biblical Christianity. And that leads to this last point. Not only does David wonder at the plan of God rather than ruminate over his pain, not only does he wonder at the people of God rather than complain about the people of God, David wonders at God's promise, and then he prays it into reality. Look at verse 25. And now, O Lord God, confirm forever the word that you have spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house, and do as you have spoken, for your name will be magnified forever, saying, The Lord of hosts is God over Israel, and the house of your servant David will be established before you. For you, O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, have made this revelation to your servant, saying, I will build my house. Therefore your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. And now, O Lord God, you are God, and your words are true. And you have promised this good thing to your servant. Now, therefore, may it please you to bless the house of your servant so that, you may continue forever, uh, so that it may continue forever before you. For you, O Lord, have spoken. And with your blessing shall the house of your servant be blessed. See, this covenant of God with David was a proverbial blank check. God gives David a check and he says... You can't even imagine the number I'm going to write in on that. And David cashes it. God gives David the green light, and he doesn't just sit there and wait. Have you ever been at a green light and the person in front of you like doesn't move? Right? It's completely inappropriate. When green lights come, you go. And God has given David a green light. I'm going to bless you, and I'm going to bless my people. And I'm going to do it for my glory. And David sees the green light and he hits the gas and he goes for it and he prays big and he asks big. And he says, God, bring this to reality. What things do you want God to bring to reality in your life? What promises has he given you that you long to see fulfilled? Raise a child up in the way he should go. He will not depart therefrom. All those who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted. The Lord has a way of breaking hearts. And we can pray with great boldness for God to fulfill His promises. So pray big. I need to hear this as much as anyone else. We need to dare each other. Pray big. Let us pray. Father, thank you for your word, which is abiding and true. We thank you for this amazing covenant that you made with David. And this covenant is, is, is but a picture frame that, that highlights your character, that you are a God of humility, of grace and faithfulness. And Lord, as we begin to trust in who you are, let us wonder at your plan rather than doubt it. Let us wonder at what you're doing among a people that are broken and sinful rather than complain. And let us pray. Let us pray these promises you give us into fulfillment, trusting you, being men and women of faith, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. The Westminster Pulpit is courtesy of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You are welcome to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 8 or 11 a.m. 
To learn more or have questions about the gift of salvation through Christ Jesus our Savior, contact us at westpca.com. Thank you, and may Christ be glorified through this ministry, the Westminster Pulpit.